I'm done. I'm done, guys. How good was that? Let's give them another applause. Okay. Got a bit of excessive wine. So we're doing David and Goliath this morning. I hope you're all pumped. I'm very pumped. Um, but let me open this up and we'll get started. Okay, so I can't even remember. I don't know, if you grew up in church, you might be like me. Like, I can't even remember learning the story of David and Goliath. I think because mum was reading it to me as like a Bible storybook before bed, before I had a memory. You know, that's why I think I don't actually remember learning it. Um, and it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's, the ep- it's one of the most epic stories of the Bible. Um, but I was thinking about this as I was reading um, as I was reading over this this week. And does anyone remember like Willy Wonka? And like there's the girl Violet and she gets given this, um, she gets given this experimental chewing gum, you know? And as you chew and you chew and you chew on this chewing gum, it goes through a whole three course meal. Uh, this is the vintage one. If you've seen the newer one, that's okay. Or if you've read the book, it's still the same. Um, and she has this, she chews and it's tomato soup and she chews this chewing gum and then it moves on and it changes to roast beef. It's the same gum, but then it, it moves on to roast potatoes and you chew and you chew and then the most marvelous bit comes, uh, the blueberry pie and ice cream or cream, something like that. And, and it's just amazing because like as we chew and we chew and we chew on the same word of God, it gets better and better and better and better. Now, we're not going to push the simile too far. Otherwise, after the sermon, we're all heading to the juicing room. Um, but there we go. I think as we chew, I don't know where you're up to in David and Goliath, where you're at, whether you're at the tomato soup or whether you're at the roast potatoes. But let's chew on the word of God again this morning uh, because there is always something most marvelous to be found there. Um, so let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, as we open up this familiar passage this morning, I ask that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. Okay, 1 Samuel 17, guys. David versus Goliath, the Philistines versus the Israelites. Uh, It's so epic. Uh, but let's start in uh, chapter one, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, right? How, how easy is it for you? You can kind of see that. Get your Bibles, get your phones out if you need to. Uh, we're going to be walking through chapter 17 this morning. So now the Philistines had gathered their forces for war and assemble, assembled at Sokoa in Judah. Uh, you, can, uh, you can read a little bit of the backstory about uh, the relationship uh, that Israel, the Israelites had with the Philistines in Judges 13 to 16 and in uh, 1 Samuel 4 to 17 for a bit more backstory. Uh, but long story short, uh, the Philistines knew the Israelites uh, and they knew who their God was, right? They, they had met with Abraham. They had met with Jacob. They had met uh, with Samson. They, had, they knew about what happened in, to the Egyptians uh, with all the plagues. They had heard all of these stories uh, that we know about the Israelites. And, um, and they'd actually, the Philistines occupied the promised land, right? And, and the promised land that the Israelites then took off them. Um, and yet here they are again, uh, ready to face these Israelites, even with all of that story, that knowledge that they have. Why try, why 
line up for battle again. Why try again? Well, maybe it's because earlier in 1 Samuel, they actually won the fight. And this is where the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant got lost. Maybe they thought to themselves that the God of the Israelites had abandoned his people and, and maybe they could gain some more land. Uh, so here they stand, the Philistines on one side of the valley, the Israelites on the other side, and then enter Goliath. I'm so not as good as Jesse. Um, but when you think of Goliath, it's right, we think of this, right? And, and that's a very true way to think of who Goliath is. But to actually get a sense of what the Israelites would have felt when they saw Goliath, I want you to think of this. Um, so basically, think of the, the, the reputation for defense and the armor of the Mandalorian. I know this is going to be lost on some of you, but the, one, the other ones, you'll get it. And then uh, think of the latest weaponry of Iron Man. Uh, so long story short, the dude is an absolute tank, right? He is a beast with a reputation and experience to boot. And that's the guy who rocks up to the battlefield, right? And then uh, in uh, 17, 8, uh, verses 8 and 10, the Philistine, this is Goliath, he says, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let's fight each other. I want you to notice two things in that verse. Right? One, the battle, the battle challenge, it is a man on man and the man represents the whole army. Right? If he loses, the army loses. If he wins, the army wins. And then also he asked for a man, someone who knew what he was doing. Right? Send me a man to come fight me. It begs the question then, you know, if you get given that challenge of the Israelite army, who should go? Who should they send? Well, surely they should send their own giant, their own champion, their own one who the Bible says in, one, in Samuel uh, chapter 9, verse 2, is head and shoulders above the rest. Who is that? King Saul. Surely they should send King Saul. But how does Saul respond? Verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Saul, their own champion, their king, their leader, is dismayed and terrified. Now imagine if you're at the battlefront and you're just one of the plebs in the army and your leader, your champion, the guy who is your big guy, is dismayed and terrified. What does that do to you? You're freaking out. Oh man, if this dude doesn't think we've got this, if he has no plan, what are we going to do? And then again, we see this in verse 24. It says again, the Israelites saw this man and they all fled from him in great fear. So instead of going to the battle line, instead of facing this guy, what does King Saul do? Verse 25, the king says he offers this out to the army. He will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and he will exempt the family from taxes in Israel. He's trying to find someone. Oh, right, let's like, let's offer something, right? Let's offer something to get someone to battle this guy. And uh, what's the translation there? I'm going to give you social status, right, with the marriage. I'm going to give you political influence. I'll give you means. I'll give you financial security, not just for your family, like not just for you, but your whole extended family. You know, he is bringing out his big guns. I'll try. Who can come? Who can come? No one. No one takes the bait. No one thinks that any of those things are worth it. Everyone is dismayed and terrified. 
And then they enter a 40-day stalemate. 40 days, same thing, nothing happens, same thing, nothing happens. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles, I want you to use that number 40 for a trigger word, like trigger number, right? When is 40 mentioned in the Bible? There's 40 days of rain, there's 40 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the desert. The fact that it's 40 days is actually significant. There's like some little references that should be pinging, right? It often serves 40 as a gentle reminder for those who have ears to hear for a a period of testing, trial or probation. That's what's happening here in these 40 days. Now, who remembers what Paul spoke about last week? I'm going to give you a shout out. Can you remember? You have to, can you know the verse? Yes? Oh, that's close. That's close. Um, 1 Samuel 16 was the chapter before. It's okay. You guys need to do your homework. Check it out on YouTube next week. Um, So, uh, Samuel 16, verse 7, right? And it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you remember now? Do you remember that verse? It is such a good verse. Now, the story of David and Goliath is chronologically, like somewhat uh, uncomfortably, debatably placed. But in the context of the narrative, it is just perfect. It happened right after this verse. It's basically on the same page in your Bible. David has just been anointed this ki- uh, as king by Samuel. And this, dis- and this verse is set as a bit of a description for the nature of David's future kingship. right? And, and in chapter 17, the David and Goliath story is actually a real life example of this verse. It's it's actually illustrating what this verse captures in a whole story, in a whole chapter. People, Saul, the Israelites, the Philistines, they looked at the outward appearance. They looked at the intimidating warrior Goliath. But God, God looked at David. And I want you to keep this in mind for the rest of the sermon. It's illustrating this one verse. Okay, let's keep going. The battle scene. Israelites on one side, Philistines on the other. Goliath, 40 days, issuing the challenge. Enter David. Now, remember remember this picture, right? This is kind of the idea of what we have of David. And that's right, that's correct. But what would have actually like, you know, to get in the minds of the Israelites, to get in the minds of the Philistines, what does kind of David look like? We'll go to the next slide. This. Right now, I, I'm really proud of myself for making an AFL reference. Right, you know, the runner who does like he's not even a player, he's just the water guy, you know, like he just delivers the fluids to the real people. Right, no one knows his name, in fact, he kind of gets in the way. Right, this is just the guy who supplies the water to the real players. This is David, right? Um, so this is the dude who rocks up. And, um, uh, oh, okay, okay. So can I have a look at my next slide? Next slide. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Right, I want you to get an idea of, so we've got, we've got this idea of who Goliath is now and who David is now. I want you to understand something significant about the battlefield, right? This guy, um, there's this quote, this, this guy Bergen says in his commentary, for David... Uh, And we 
judge for all Orthodox Jews of the New Testament of the true faith of God, armed conflict was fundamentally a religious event, right? Armed conflict was fundamentally a religious event. It is not just mono on mono here. There is something else going on. It is David and Goliath. It is the Philistines versus Israel. But it is also the God of the Philistines, Dagon, versus the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? There, there is a spiritual level and of what's going on here. When they're trying to gain land, when they're fighting for land, the Philistines lined up and they're trying to take their land back, that land is significant. It symbolizes life, right? If you had land, you could grow crops, you could have cattle, you could have a future for your family, you'd have security, right? There was life in having land. And, and not only that, but it was that this land was promised by God. So if you are losing this land, that compromises the promises of God. It compromises the word of God. And then additionally, if you've lost the battle, well, it means our God is stronger than your God, right? They, like bat the battlefield, war was a fundamentally religious event. It wasn't just like random fisticuffs. Um, so then what happens, right? This is where we are. David goes on, he has a conversation with his brother, as we saw. He goes on and he has a conversation with Saul. And when we hear the conversation with his brother, we get triggered for all the, you know, relationships with brothers that have happened in the Old Testament so far. And then when he has the thing with Saul, he gives him his armor, right? That's a signaling for future what's happening in 1 Samuel because David's actually receiving Saul's kingship, isn't he? So there's a little bit of foreshadowing happening here. And then he has a conversation with Goliath. Now, Goliath, he finally sees after 40 days, someone coming to fight him. And is it the man he wanted? No, it is, the text says, little more than a boy. And he says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks and, a Philistine, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods? Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David's response, so epic. Okay, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. All those who gathered here will know it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of, your, uh, all of you into our hands. He didn't have any armor. What was his armor? God. He barely had any weapons. Who was his weapon? God. And this is exactly what happens. He says it and then it comes to pass. Verse 49, reaching into his bag, he takes out a stone. He slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down. Two really cool biblical coincidences in this little verse here. Okay, 1 Leviticus 24, 16. Anyone who denies the name of the Lord, whether a foreigner or native born, must die by stoning. Anyone who defies the name of the Lord must die by stoning. Nice little stone, David. Okay, then 2. Dagon, in, uh, earlier in Samuel, chapter 5, verse 3. Remember, Dagon, the God of the Philistines, right? Right, the Ark of the Covenant is taken into his temple and it falls, he falls flat on his face. 5 verse 3 and then just a few chapters later a representative of God 
versus a representative of Dagon, the representative of Dagon falls flat on his face. Same, like same word for word, right? There is a statement being made against the gods of the nation in this as well, because the battlefield is most definitely a religious event, right? So, and in this, the victory of the people, the victory of the land, the promises of God, the word of God was secured, not by the outward appearance, but by the heart. By the heart, these things were made secure. And it was a statement to everyone. So, when I chew, and I chew, and I chew on this chapter, as I have been doing, what do I find? I found relief. That's what I found. The Israelites, the people of God, the ones who entered the promised land, the seed of Abraham, frozen in fear, terrified, humiliated, shamed, alone, not knowing what to do. 40 days, this absolute beast of a warrior, standing in the names of the gods of the land before them. And there's no one. They're running out of supplies. Their own champions are too scared. They're stuck. A mix of fear and hope would have come into them when David kind of went to the scene. Because like, you know, what happens if this guy loses? You know, we're all wrecked. But maybe, maybe something's going on here. Then Goliath hits the ground with a thud. The gods of the nations are defeated yet again. Wave of relief. Massive wave of relief. God has delivered his people yet again. He's delivered them out of Egypt. He delivered them time and time again through the judges. And here, oppressed again, here, delivered again. Relief. Now, have you ever gone to a party or a cafe or a class and you're by yourself and you walk around looking for someone you know and you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> oh, someone I know just walked through the door. Relief. Or maybe um, you're waiting to be picked up. I know, I got left at school a fair bit. Um, by, and you see your friends go one by one, one by one. And then someone you know comes through the door to come get you. Oh, relief. Maybe you've got a big task to do on the house and you know it's too much for you. You know you can't lift that thing or you can't get it done. There's just too much. And then someone you know says to you, I'll help. Oh, relief. Maybe you've broken down on the side of the road and your car's just wrecked and you're alone and it's dark and it's raining and then someone you know arrives. Then maybe they can't even fix your car, but you're not alone anymore. Oh, relief. Relief is found in relationship. Relief is found in relationship. The Israelites were looking at the outward appearance. They wanted a king, a champion to look like Goliath. They wanted to be like the other nations. How often we find relief in the wrong places. We look for relief in our situations. We look for relief in our circumstance to look the way other people's circumstances look. We look for relief to be successful, to look attractive, to look productive, to look intelligent, to look wealthy, to look cool, to look insert countless more words, just like everybody else. Because then, oh, 
it'll be all right. But relief is not found here. These things are fine and okay, but ultimately they don't last. Ultimately, they don't satisfy. If you look for relief, true relief in obtaining these things, it will be at best short-lived. A constant supply of relief is found in relationship with Jesus. And we need relief. We do. But what do we need relief from? What is that ultimate thing that we're trying to fill? Say losing heart. We need relief from losing heart. So what does that even mean? That kind of doesn't make sense, right? Well, in chapter 17, verse 32, David brought relief so that no one would lose heart. To lose heart is to be despondent, to give up, to lose confidence or to lose hope, to look at a situation or a relationship or even life in general and just to be like the Israelites in a stalemate. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I'm stuck here. I've got nothing left. And I think we've all been there, whether it be in small things or big things or both. It can also, it can just happen in the daily grind of faith. Trying to live out your faith in family, with kids and grandkids, at school, at work. Your own sense of direction in life. We lose heart. We need relief. We look inside ourselves and we come up empty. It's in this place, you don't need to try to be like David. You need a David. You don't need to try to be like David. You need a David to come in, to come onto the scene. In Hebrews 11, it speaks of the heroes of faith, of Abraham, of Moses, and of David. And these men were but shadows, pointing towards the true saviour that we need to relieve us and restore our heart. It says in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What I know of the poverty and the persecution of the early church is that relief doesn't necessarily come in a change of circumstances, but it comes in a change of heart. Where do you find yourself losing heart right now? What are the things that weigh you down? Where do you need relief? Your marriage, your singleness, your friendships, your children, your children's future, your grandchildren, your work, your expectations of yourself, your expectations of others, your future, your past. Where are you getting weighed down? Where have you forgotten you need a saviour? Where have you said, I have this situation under control? But in reality, it's not. A constant supply of relief is found in relationship with Jesus. I encourage you this morning 
to confess these things to God, these situations where you're despondent and downhearted and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with the peace that transcends understanding, to restore you with the joy of your salvation, to draw you in with the words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Because relief comes with relationship, relationship with Jesus. And Jesus does not abandon his people. Let's pray. Lord, like the Israelites, please bring us relief. For those things which are too much for us, which have brought us down and hang heavy on our hearts, we acknowledge we need a saviour. Lord Jesus, we need you to relieve us and restore to us the joy of our salvation. Please do this now for anyone who has tears for doubt and is willing. In Jesus' name, amen. That was really amazing. <laughs> Lots to think about in the week ahead. We're going to join together now and sing one last song. Um, this song is... I want to know you and um, if, const if relief is found in our constant relationship is with Jesus, we all need to know him more, don't we? So let's join together and sing this last song together. Thank you. 